so multiply there. I mean, you were doing like almost a $10 million run rate B2C back then, right? Uh, pretty close. That's, that's right. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. Hey folks, my guest today is Alex Quilici. He's the CEO of Umail. Before that, he was co- he co-founded and was the CEO of Quack.com, which provided a consumer voice portal service that was essentially Siri over a 1-800 number back before there were even smartphones. AOL acquired Quack for $200 million in August 2000 and just 18 months after it was founded. Impressive short life cycle there. And at AOL, he was president of uh, vice president of voice services, where he helped drive the acquisition, the division to multiple product launches and over a million paying subscribers and over 50 million bucks in annual revenue. Today he's building Umail, which help you helps you stop spam calls and messages. Alex, you ready to take us to the top? I am. Let's go. All right. Now I love this. When I had you back on in early 2019, you had an ARPU. You remember that what you told me you had an ARPU about 12 bucks a month on average. You were B2C <laughs> only. What has changed? So the biggest thing is email wants to stop spam calls either before they get to the consumer's handset or even better when they're actually made. So we've created products that enable carriers to monitor their network and detect when they're originating these bad guy calls. And we've created tools that allow enterprises to shut down imposter scams. You know, those calls you get that pretend to be Marriott or pretend to be your bank. So when you say, so, so carrier would be AT&T. So you help AT&T monitor their networks to prevent these like bad guy calls or these fake Marriott hotel, fake social security calls? Actually, it's not AT&T, T-Mobile and Verizon, the carriers that are interesting here because they're not really responsible for making the calls. It turns out most people don't know there's almost 3,000 wholesale carriers in the US. And those carriers can provide things like hospital you know, tele- telephony, they can provide international telephony, they can provide call center telephony. They provide all these different ways to make phone calls. Well, the bad guys just abuse many of those carriers and sometimes they don't even know it. And so we try to name, help them discover when it's happening. Those? What's that? Can you name one or two of those? Uh, sure. There's uh, like Airstream is an example of a wholesale carrier that provides services for enterprises but you know, bad guys can use their network. There's there's tons of them. The way to find the full list is go to the FCC. They have something called a form uh, four ninety nine that you have to file if you're a carrier. There's the list. Interesting. Okay, so let's just get the backstory though. So in 2019, what were consumers paying you for? So they were paying us for essentially robocall blocking and privacy protection as well as second phone lines that were robocall free and had a number of business uh, phone features. That was the consumer model. Now, are my these notes could be wrong, so feel free to correct me. But my notes say that you had about twelve dollars a month per customer. You had about sixty-five thousand customers, right? Yeah, that's that's spot on. Okay, so multiply there. I mean, you were doing like almost a ten million dollar run rate B two C back then, right? Uh, pretty close. That's that's right. So, I mean, I would say that's a pretty successful B two C company. Why, why pivot at all? What did you realize? Well, we realized that the carriers and the enterprises needed help. They're willing to pay up for that help. If you're an enterprise and someone's using your name in making tons of imposter phone calls to rip people off, that not only gives you customer support costs, but it causes brand damage. And you may even have to reimburse those 
those people as a form of goodwill. So there's tremendous damage there that they're willing to pay a portion of to stop the problem. And enterprises are not $12. They're not $120 a month. They're substantially larger when you can find and get these contracts successfully. Carriers are the same way. That's really interesting. And just to build up the backstory before we focus the rest of the interview on the enterprise motion today, what year, do you remember what year you passed? I know you launched in 2007, but what year did you pass a million in annual revenue? Uh, that was a while ago. That was probably 2009, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So you went from zero to a million in about two years. Yep, that's correct. In fact, we did it in about 11 months because we were completely free service. We're running out of money. We needed a business model and we quickly pivoted, found a subscription and got to a million. That's amazing. Um, you bootstrapped or have you raised? So it was an interesting company. I actually came in not as the founder, but as an early investor. Uh, they'd raised a couple million in angel money before I even got there. I came in as a board member and I helped them raise VC funding and then I became the CEO. So we're, we're a company that has VC funding. And then we also did a crowdsourced round in 2015, which was really transformative for us. How the hell do you keep a cap table clean with all this going on? Uh, well, you don't at first, <laughs> but we keep it as clean as we can. And you know, one of the things is, even in a crowdfunding round, we didn't go after the $1,000 investor, we went after the 50,000 plus investor. So that doesn't add too many new people to the pool, you know, even if you raise a few million dollars. I, I see. Okay. So I guess maybe just let's get the most up-to-date data. So what was the last round? When did you raise in? Was it your Series B or C or what? So the last round was a Series B and it was 2015. So since then, we've been acting like a bootstrap company. We try to keep, you know, uh, break even as roughly where we run. Sometimes we'll lose a little money as a project to help spur growth, but we're really been, we've been growing all that growth as a break even company. Well, that's okay. So last round, just to be clear, it was, was 15, 5 million or 15 million? It was 5 million in 2015. Yeah, which is a, maybe a big round for 2015. Uh, and maybe, <laughs> you know, today markets are now correcting, but okay. So 5 million Series B. Um, and I guess what, including the 5 million, what's the total you raised today, including crowdfunding? So we've raised a little over $15 million in our history. But what's important to know is Umail was several different companies. It started off as a voicemail for carrier company and ran out of runway trying to sell the carriers, which turns out to be pretty difficult, right? If you're trying to help them do something that affects consumers. Uh, we then got uh, stuck around for about four or five years where we were embroiled in a bunch of lawsuits over a feature we had. They were all dismissed. We pivoted to a call blocking company, raised the 5 million. And that's really how we view Umail now is, We've done almost everything with the five million. What year did you officially come in as CEO? I came in in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. So very early in the life oh, cycle. Yeah, so I, yeah. So I mean, for all of basically this, day one. I've been through the first wave of trying to take a strategy someone else had and executing it with carriers, seeing that fail, moving to transition to a consumer company, seeing that struggle because of lawsuits and other other challenges, and then pivoting to a call blocking company. And now we're pivoting again, but to some degree, to be call blocking for carriers and enterprises, not just consumers. A lot of founders listening today are doing ambitious things that sometimes run into sort of like legal issues, right? Competitors just trying to be nasty and sue them because they're early to kill them. You you won that bet. I mean, how give us some kind of how much did you spend on legal bills back in the day, and like how much time and energy did it take? How did you get the team like morale high to make it through that? So it was pretty ugly. We had four class action lawsuits over a feature we had where if you called me, it would automatically send you a text back saying, I'm busy, go to my website, send me an email, whatever the, the user wanted. That was called auto reply. Uh, people said, oh, that's violating TCPA and sued the founders personally, right? And the executive team personally, as well as the company. It took three years and about a quarter of a million dollars to get out of that mess. 
Ultimately, wow. the FCC found we were doing nothing wrong. We were actually innovation that they, they like to see. If someone calls, they're giving you permission to call them back. That was, the, that was essentially it. And, totally. And so that, but that was extremely draining. Uh, the team stuck with it because we believed in the vision. Even in 2012, 2013, we saw call blocking coming. We started our first, you know, uh, variants of our features to make that easier. And once, once we got done with the lawsuit, then we were able to raise the crowdfunding round and, you know, the rest is sort of history. Everybody's really glad they stuck around because we're making such a huge difference now. No, this makes tons of sense. Uh, really interesting story. Okay, now let's fast forward to sort of present day. So, so what are you selling today? What's the average enterprise paying when they sign up per year, and what are they getting for that? So, you know, they're paying what a typical enterprise pays, which means you know five digits. But we can't talk about all the details, obviously. So it can be sure. somewhere in that range. That's kind so of about like ten thousand bucks a year is fair, right? What's that? More than you have customers paying more than ten thousand bucks a year. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's yeah. the enterprise, and then carriers are similar. And what they yep. get, what an enterprise gets for that is if there's somebody out there that's being an imposter, that's pretending to be them, we will let them know how many of those calls are out there and we will shut them down. And so we will make it so those guys can't pop up. If they pop up again, we whack them. And so mm -hmm. that's a really great business because it essentially protects the enterprise's brand reputation, protects their call centers, and protects just random people from harm from a given imposter thinking it's whoever that enterprise is. Mm -hmm. Did you just let the 65,000 B2C customers churn off? Or like how many customers are you serving today? Uh, actually, it's grown a bit. The, the thing is, the B2C business is critical for us. They're a sensor network that tells us what's going on with scam calls. So everybody who has Umail is contributing to the fight to stop robocalls. There's data about this illegal call hit this person and left this message pretending to be, say, Amazon. That's extremely valuable for the enterprise side of the business because we have all this data we can use that tells us, here's exactly what's going on. Here's where those calls are coming from. And here's how we get rid of them. Same with the carrier. So if there's a wholesale carrier, we can look at what's coming from their network and show them, here's the illegal activity that's hitting our pool of consumers. So in our case, the B2C business is the critical enabler that allows us to have a differentiated B2B solution. And so I guess, let me just split it up then, right? So how many B2C customers do you have now today? You know, critical part of your network. So we're so B2C customers, we have actually we've had 10 million people sign up for email. And so a significant number of them are active every month as free users plus the paid users. So that's the size of the network. It's literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of phone calls coming into us. That that's great. What I'm trying to measure is how successful you've been converting 10 million free or active, which you still get value from because there are alerts in your ecosystem. But how many how successful have you been converting those folks into paid? Is it still about 65, 70,000 paid? Yeah, it's in, it's in that ballpark. It's grown a little okay. bit. We actually focused on increasing our pool uh, rather than trying to grow that base to so get more money from the pool as opposed to make the pool bigger. Uh, that was the right thing to do, I think, in COVID during COVID times. But the data we've collected is fantastic because the free business keeps growing. We keep getting more and more people in there and eventually they convert. What is going on podcast crew? I want to let you guys know, I'm recording this just for you. We've got the big event coming up here shortly in about two weeks. Founder 500 in Austin, Texas. We've got over 500 B2B SaaS founders getting together. Over 100 of them have more, over 150 actually have more than a million in revenue. It's maybe the largest gathering of B2B SaaS founders with real revenues anywhere in the world. It's just going to be an amazing group. I don't want you to miss out. Grab your tickets by going, uh, just searching on Google founder 500, founder 500, and you should find the Eventbrite link that way. I'd love to see you guys there.
You've touched on enterprise motion with $10,000 ACVs, but we were before talking about a B2C motion of 144 bucks a year or 12 bucks a month. To your point, with 70,000 customers, if you increase ARPA by 10 bucks a year across 70,000 customers, that moves the needle for your business. It's adding almost a million bucks of new ARR. You haven't talked about what products you've started selling more into the B2C range to increase that ARPA by a couple of dollars every year. You want to talk about that? Yeah. So one of the things we did is we have a product called Email Plus, which is our privacy protection offering. What we did to that offering is we added something where we can guarantee you won't get robocalls. 100%, no robocalls are going to get through. That's something that consumers found worthwhile. And that enabled us to move from a $4.99 ARPU for that particular product up to where it looks like it's $5.99, $6.99, even with discounting and with annual plans. And so it was creating a better value proposition. It was one thing to, we'll block most of them. We'll give you some customization. It's another thing to say, nope, we guarantee it. We're going to block every single robocall. There's no way a robocaller is going to get through. And when we were able to deliver on that promise, we're seeing that churn goes down and we can charge more. That's amazing. Okay. That's the B2C side. How many folks are on the B2, you know, paying on the B2B side today? We're talking like a handful, 10, 20, or more like a thousand? No, we're in the, you know, the 20-ish range, I think, somewhere okay. in that ballpark. It's something that started with one paying customer two years ago. And so that's pretty good to get that kind of growth. And I think we're going to see a double or more in the next year, just at the pace yep. But but I guess so then just to be clear, if we break like if you look at your full, like all your revenue from last year on a percent basis, the majority is still B2C versus B2B. Yep, I'd say 80-20 is a rough approximation of where we've gotten to, somewhere in that ballpark. I think if you look out two years, it's going to be the other way around. And we can yep. see it for three years, it's going to move to, well, probably 40% B2C, 60% B2B and go from there. So consumers yep. growing steadily, but slowly B2B is, is you know doubling every year or more. That's great. Let's talk a little bit more about your team here. How many folks are full-time today? So we have 30 full-time employees, but the really interesting story is that during COVID, we were able to take advantage of remote work, which enabled us to hire people all over the world, including as contractors. So the total team size is approaching 70, but a lot of that are people who work on a contract basis. And we found that's a really efficient way for us to get development done, get certain kinds of marketing done, do customer support. You don't need to have an employee sitting in California. They can be somebody at home in Jamaica and be just as good at doing uh, customer support. Okay. Everyone wants the playbook to using contractors. Someone's going to build a billion dollar business and have one FTE as the founder <laughs> and then a network of contractors. So you got you to teach us here. I mean, who are you using for development and how did you find them? Well, so the really key thing for us is that we have a core development team. We aren't outsourcing it 100%. What we wanted to do was find support for tasks like maintenance or relatively simple tasks that don't require a really complicated skill set. If you're fixing iPhone bugs, that's completely different than if you're building an iPhone UI from scratch, you're building complicated uh, data manipulations. That's a different group. So we contract out a lot of what I would say is the easier stuff. And it was through our network, we found someone who basically built a contracting firm in Asia who knows how to pull people together with the skills we want and has been able to staff up and down as we need. It's amazing. And that's been really What's the name, What's the What's name that? of that? that? Can you share the name of that, con that company in Asia? Uh, I pro uh, the, it's actually a person. It's an individual who's one of our friends, who one of our contacts. Oh, so it's not like a network that anyone can go use. No, it's, it's we got lucky that the way we were looking for someone. We found this guy to help us who developed for us. And he said, I have a whole network of people I can bring in. And we just went from there. What about so, support? What's that? Contractors, support. How do you find the support contractors? So again, that was a contact from our past who'd done that for another company. He actually had done it for a company called Line 2, which was a second phone line. And it built up a remote supply through uh, essentially an agent who knew how to pull everybody together in Jamaica 
and knew how to evaluate customer support. So we put that together, leveraged him, and now the team's 15, 20, something like that of just those contractors there. And they do a terrific job. That's answering the live chat on the website, phone live calls. Live chat on the website, emails, uh, phone calls, phone support, all of that. Nice. Can I, if I wanted to use them, are you like, are you open to me reaching out? Yeah. If you send me an email, I think I want to be careful about having a zillion people contact him, but yeah, he's yeah. perfectly happy to build support teams up for people. He's very, That's very amazing. Good. Okay. And then lastly, marketing, how do you find marketing contractors? I know what they're doing. So it's, it's kind of the network effect there too. So there's a lesson here, right? So in our network, we had one person who's been kind of an outsourced CMO for a variety of companies. We brought him in to help us with strategy, positioning, a whole set of things. And he'd start going, well, you guys really need help here. I know somebody. Let's bring them in as a contract for 20 hours a week and work on something. I know somebody else and gradually built that up. And then we've been hiring people too. Like some of the contractors have become full-time because they really like working with us. But you know, when you start out, your online marketing guy doesn't have to be 40 hours a week. Your online marketing guy can be 10 hours a week to run a limited set of campaigns and tests that they're trying to do to, to advertise your B2C stuff. So yep. we found the contractor model really, really works, but it's because we have trusted people who are bringing them in. We have not just gone to a random firm who's contacted me on LinkedIn and said, yeah, let's outsource development. And so yeah, it's about makes- building your network, right? And I think it's really critical to build up a good network that you can then leverage for this sort of stuff. That makes tons of sense. Now, in terms of size of business, say again, if you're doing 10 million in ARR back in 2019 or around there with 65,000 B2C customers, it sounds like you've grown that maybe up to 70,000. You increased ARPU a little bit. So maybe that takes you to 12. And then you have a little bit, maybe call it a million or so coming in through the B2B side. Are you sort of in that like 12 to 14 million ARR range today? Uh, let's put it this way I'm probably going to get fired if I'm not hitting 15 by uh, somewhere about the middle of next year, at least. So your, your estimate's not bad. Fair. Well, so let me ask you this question. I mean, you raised Series B back in 2015. Those folks, this isn't a knock on you or anything, but they've written this investment off, right? It hasn't it hasn't tripled every year, which is ridiculous anyway. But that's what you sign up for when you when you do VC. So, I mean, can you buy those early folks out, clean up the cap table, and get more of this bad boy back? Or if not, why not sell the business and move on to the next thing? So, you know, the thing is, the value we've created in the last couple of years exceeds everything we created in the first, you know, 10, 12 years of doing this. So. The whole point about when do you want to sell out, when do you want to uh, you know, try to buy out investors is when do you think you've hit the point where you can get a really good return for them and you're probably not going to do better over time. If, I, if we'd sold this thing in 2018, the business was kind of flat, growing slowly. We hadn't completed our transition. It would be completely uninteresting to get a, a 2x or maybe even lucky a 3x on 5 million in revenue, right? Nobody's yeah. happy. Now we're growing at a good clip. Everybody can look out a couple of years and go, well, if you keep that up, this is going to be a nine-digit plus business when it goes. Why would I jump out now? And so it's yep. a bit of a sunk cost fallacy people have, right? Because this is kind of the opposite, which is this isn't going anywhere. It's never going to go anywhere in the future. You can't make that conclusion. You have to look at where it is now and say, what's going on? What's the evidence this is going to succeed or fail? Well, but it's less about you. It's more about those funds. Those funds that wrote a check in 2015, where the life cycles of a fund is 10 years, those funds are almost dead. Like those fund life cycles are almost dead relative to like what you're building now. So it's less about you. It's just more about timing on the VC side. Well, and the interesting thing is there's mostly crowdsourced individuals and individuals are patient, right? You know, if you put 50,000 in or 100,000 in, you're fine with taking your time to see that turn into something big. If it can turn into a million over seven, eight, I 10 see. years, you're happy. <laughs> The inst- we do have some institutions and they, of course, always look for ways to, to kind of get out or trade, but you know, they know that this is growing now. So some of them are sitting there going, okay, well, this isn't bad. We stuck around and didn't try to force something. 
Well, if you want to buy out your investors, we have 145 million bucks of fresh capital. This is one of the top use cases, how we're working with bootstrappers or, or rel, almost bootstrapping. We give them a million, two million, five million, six million bucks. They go buy out the early folks and, and they own more equity. So the one, the one I love, I love debt. So we took some debt a couple of years ago in order to accelerate growth. We said, break, you know, we're going to burn some money for a little bit. We have a very specific plan. We're going to build this B2B thing. We took some debt. The challenge with debt is always you've got to pay it back. And that actually is money you cannot spend on growing your business. So how long did you have to pay it back? So we have what three years to pay a couple million in debt back, a little bit more yeah. than that. And you weren't able to add, you weren't able, I mean, that's three years is still a long time. You weren't able to take the upfront cash and add enough MRR to more than cover the interest payments over three years. We're we're looking at various strategies here, right? It's we want to figure out what to do. And so that there are possibilities. We have we're always getting approached by people saying, hey, we'll give you five million bucks. You can do this, this, and that with it. But we're a little bit conservative because we think, well, if the B2B business grows at the rate it's growing, it makes a lot more sense to do this six months or a year from now because there's plenty of you know EBITDA to cover it. Yeah. It's yeah, a tough call. Are you Everybody profitable? has to balance growth versus you know, how much they want to burn. You're profitable today? Yeah, we're running break even, deliberately okay. break even to maximize growth. Yeah, that makes sense. Very cool. Great story here. Alex, let's wrap up with the famous five. Number one, favorite book. Uh, my favorite book is still free by, uh, I think it's Chris Anderson from like 10, 15 years ago. Yep. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying? Uh, well, every like everybody else, Elon Musk, I, I think he's just awesome. And I love the fact he's so honest about everything. He has no filter. And I think more CEOs need to be like that. Number three, what's your favorite online tool for building email? Uh, my favorite online tool for building email, it's, it's really interesting. It's actually Slack now because communication is so critical to the business working, especially when you go remote. Number four, what's your favorite? Uh, sorry, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? I'm actually getting seven and a half now. My doctor told me I better. I used to get six and that was awesome. What's your situation? Married, single kids? I'm married to kids, both, uh, both now are going to be in high school. So I'm kind of aging out. <laughs> That's amazing. How old are you? I'm not saying publicly. It's one of those ah. things that's too embarrassing with all the kids listening. That's fair enough. Okay. Last question. Something you wish you knew when you were 20. Uh, I really wish I started being an entrepreneur earlier in life rather than later in life. And I didn't realize how satisfying it is as a career. Even if you hit wall after wall, when you finally don't hit a wall, it's just a wonderful feeling to make an impact. Guys, you may have started off helping consumers block robocalls on their personal phones, built up 65,000 paying customers at 12 bucks a month and 10 million ARR around there back in 2019. The business has been sort of flat since then. However, they now have a B2B play that with 20 enterprise customers on there with higher ACVs, call it 10 grand a year, uh, scaling nicely. And in his own words, quote, I'll be fired in the next 12 months if I don't break 15 million bucks in ARR. We're obviously rooting for you. Alex, thanks for taking us to the top. All right. Thank you.